Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summerall. Hey guys, this week we are talking to Mark Livingston, the CEO of Pharmacy to You. And Mark describes his career as covering sex, drugs and rock and roll. And it is definitely close. So Mark joined Pharmacy to You after a merger with ChemistDirect.co.uk, which was in July 2016. He's an entrepreneur, he's a business leader, and he's had a load of senior positions across retail and technology. He's been in sectors like computer games, theme parks. His roles have been co-founder and CEO of Love Film, which was bought by Amazon. He was worldwide managing director of Lego Interactive and even one of the people behind the startup Graze.com. So as you can tell, Mark thoroughly enjoys a subscription and has now moved into a prescription as well in the pharmacy to you. Anyway, so Mark and I discuss his epic career. Uh, we discuss how to grow businesses as a CEO. We talk about why you should double down on your strengths. We talk about how and why Mark moved into health tech. We talk about the differences between all of his other sectors and health tech too. We talk about the future of the pharmacy sector. We cover a heck of a lot in this podcast and it was honestly one of my favourites. Mark's an incredible guy. He's done so much in his career. Really fascinating, really humble guy too. And if you want to get in touch with Mark, then head over to the description of this episode. You can find links to his socials and of course, all of ours as usual. Enjoy. Great. So Mark, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thanks, James. It's the first day back. So um, yeah, this is my, fir- my first test of 2020. It is indeed. Yeah, we're recording this on that, that horrendous first Monday when everyone's going to go back to work and uh, decide how they're going to spend the rest of their year, etc. Like it's, uh, it's an interesting time, isn't it? Interesting time. How was your Christmas and New Year? Did you get to anything good? Yeah, really good. We were skiing before Christmas and then just oh, had um, family over for Christmas and ate and drank too much. But it's a great time to reflect, great time to kind of think about what you've achieved in, in 2019 or didn't quite achieve and what you want to achieve in 2020. So I feel recharged and fit for the fight, so to speak. Awesome. Awesome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Mark? Uh, I'm at home in Windsor. Lovely. Lovely. So, Mark, the way that we kick these podcasts off is I get you to tell your story. So, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us all about what makes you you and where you are in your career right now. Okay, so I'm now the uh, tender age of 53, and um, I started my career uh, by not succeeding at school. Uh, much to my parents, um, <laughs> like both of my parents were teachers, so um, so I was not academically um, engaged shall we say my sister was she was very bright I wasn't um, I didn't enjoy school and was itching to leave and itching to earn money so in my kind of later years at school I, I went and finished my A-levels but at, until then I you know had multiple kind of sideline jobs from buying and selling bikes to paper rounds to Saturday jobs to selling and then fitting kitchens you name it I was doing it whilst I was supposed to be studying but that kind yeah. of gave me a text for ploughing my own career, selling, I guess, uh, retail, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then at 18, left school, didn't want to go to uni, um, and uh, got accepted by both Sainsbury's and Woolworths. Um, some of the listeners will remember Woolies, but but um, they'll definitely know Sainsbury's. 
and um, they had a graduate A-level entrant training scheme, and I got accepted by both, and I accepted Woolies over Sainsbury's. Mm-hmm. Um, I often asked why I accepted Woolies, and, and it just felt like it was so chaotic. And <laughs> anyone with any kind of ability could get somewhere within Woolies, whereas nice. within Sainsbury's it was very structured and very organized, <laughs> and a very successful business. So I guess my first forays were you know, kind of learning to work within a chaotic organization and forge my own career within it. And, and that mm. sort of paid off. So I started as a trainee manager, uh, went to Winchester, um, lasted in stores for about three months before I got seconded to head office. And I worked on a project team for two years, which was all about going the length and breadth of the UK and refurbishing and retraining staff on what Woolworths would be in the future, um, albeit that future was relatively short. So you know, at the tender age of 19, I had a company car, which was a Vauxhall Belmont diesel. I stayed in <laughs> hotels uh, pretty much for two years. And there were a team of about 15 of us. And we would go and hit a store, spend 48 hours in the store with a shop fitter refitting it, retraining the staff, reprioritizing, re-merchandising, putting new signage up and then leave and try and do two or three of those in a week. Um, and that was just a really exciting career for me and, and got me on the road and I really really enjoyed it I did that for two years after that I was then given an opportunity within head office so I started off as a assistant marketing manager within the entertainment division of Woolworths and Woolies at the time had some gargantuan market shares they had something like a 40% market share of the pre-recorded video market a 25% wow. share of the singles market um, and a 20% share of the albums market. So if Woolworths didn't stock it or didn't like it, an artist wouldn't even release a single. And, you know, it won't come to surprise you that Cliff Richard and Woolies are pretty good bedfellows. And I remember <laughs> once where we, where we wouldn't stock a single of his and he refused to release it nationwide because he knew without us he wouldn't get in the top 10. So I, I really enjoyed that kind of marketing power and muscle of, of Woolworths. Um, and worked my way up. So from assistant marketing manager, became marketing manager, then went into buying um, and then ended, ended up at 26 as head of buying for the entertainment division of Woolworths, which is about 30 odd people um, and just under 700 million pounds worth of buying responsibility. So I was punching way, way, way above my weight early on in my career. During that time, Kingfisher, which owned Woolworths, also owned Comet, also owned Superdrug, uh, also owned B&Q, had a fast-track graduate scheme where they would put two or three people a year through a tailor-made master's degree program at Stirling University. And I got fast-tracked into that and sponsored to do my master's degree. Um, Prior to that, I'd done my marketing qualification, so my certificate and diploma in the Charles Institute of Marketing, Um, So I started kind of, it was funny, actually, I I went back to academia when it made sense for me, when I could see why. I was about to say, it's really interesting, that kind of no university decision, um, which I think is coming, starting to come back around, actually. But yeah, and then then as soon as it starts to make sense for you, you actually go and then decide to do it, which actually seems the right way around to do it, I want to say controversially. Well, I I definitely, I I say exactly this, and funnily enough, all of our kids have gone to uni, but... um, I am a massive advocate of do not go to university if you haven't got a clue why you want to go, yeah. which was, would have been the reason why I went. And I probably would have got kicked out and definitely would have ran up a huge amount of debt and definitely <laughs> would have got as far as I got, you know, yeah. at the age of 26. Yeah. So 
So I did all that. And then at 26, a supplier of ours called Telstar Records, who had a brilliant business model where they would license the best tracks from all of the major film, uh, all of the major music companies, and then put it on a compilation album and TV advertise it, decided that they wanted to get into game software. And part of my buying responsibility was game software. And that's for Sega and Nintendo, as it, as it was at the time. So I knew quite a lot about Sega and Nintendo. Um, and they hired me to basically set up a publishing division of Telstar Records, which we called Telstar Electronic Studios. And basically, for the next four years, I spent my time buying European overstocks from people like Electronic Arts and other major games mm. companies putting them into twin packs and then TV advertising them at half price, which is such a simple no brainer proposition. Yeah. You kind of think, why didn't someone do it before we had, but no one had done it. And suffice to say it was very successful. So we basically built a business that resold overstocks at half the price to consumers. And we were loved by the uh, games companies because we could get rid of their problems. <laughs> and we were loved by the consumer because we were giving them great games at half the price that they would have paid for them when they were originally launched. Such a good model. So simple. So that, was, that was a great model. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a one-trick pony, but it, it built quite a successful business. I then got my biggest break in my proper career, as I always like to say, which is at <laughs> 30, I got a phone call from a headhunter asking me to fly to a place called Billund uh, in the middle of Jutland, Denmark, uh, a place that I hadn't even heard of before, <laughs> to meet the guy who had something to do with Lego, the toy company. And I was very keen to go because I wanted to license the brand and then publish a Lego game, which we'd developed, but I didn't have the brand. Mm. So I very quickly accepted the invitation. And as mm. it transpired, I met a, a lovely gentleman called Kel Kirk Christiansen, who, as it transpired, was the grandson of the founder of Lego. And bearing in mind, Lego was, at that time, probably 70 years old. You know, this, this, this wasn't a young whippersnapper. This was a lovely Danish guy who I got on very well with. And basically, at the end of the meeting, he offered me the job of, it's a great title, Worldwide Managing Director of Lego Interactive. And the brief oh, was, we've got, we've got a dusty toy brand that people are thinking is becoming a little less relevant. We know that we're losing people all the time to the games industry. How can we take our brand and our values and make them work in the interactive space? And for eight years, I basically ran Lego's interactive division, which at the time of starting was non-existent, but at the time of finishing was two, 300 million pounds plus business a year. And now has gone on to become Lego is not only the most successful toy company, but also the most successful toy company in the interactive space. Mm. Not because of what I did, but because of some of the people I had great fortune to work with who then went on and published games like Lego Star Wars and you know, various other classic hits using other IP as well as Lego. Um, and I really enjoyed that for eight years. It was a great gig. I was on the global management team. Um, I did a huge amount of traveling. Lego is exactly the company that it is what it appears to be on the tin. You know, fantastic values, really sincere about child development and, you know, just a very, very honest and straight company. And I, and I very much enjoyed my time working with them and, and did that for eight years. 
during which time I also uh, ran Legoland Windsor because I live in Windsor oh, because, wow. I Brit, because I was the only Brit on the global management team. Um, the park had kind of lost its way a bit. And uh, I kind of stuck my hand up and said, um, as part of my responsibility, I'd love to do that as well. And, and for two years, ran Legoland Windsor as well. So can, I, just say, can I say at this point, you have, you have been involved in some of the most fun sectors of business yeah. that I've ever heard of any of my guests. You've gone from music to computer yeah, games to Lego yeah. and now theme yeah. parks. This is incredible. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 as, I, as I will complete my career, as we get on to my last bit, I've done the sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um so that was fantastic fun and just really enjoyed it however at 38 thought you know what I, i'm not going to get any further in lego principally because i'm not danish um and i think it, it is a kind of a necessity to be danish to to e end up running the lego toy company um and i felt that i'd learned an awful lot but i was itching to go and do something else and um that's where my kind of proper career stopped and my more entrepreneurial career started with, yeah. with meeting a guy who ran a family fund, uh, a Norwegian guy called Thomas Hogue, who had a family fund uh, and invested in startups and entrepreneurial companies. And he was very quickly onto the scent of Netflix in the US and mm. believed that there was an opportunity to create the Netflix of the US in Europe before Netflix came to Europe uh, with a view to selling it to Netflix as and when they came to Europe. So with that kind of Tim Pop brain, uh, he'd stumbled across a, a brilliant little business in Harlow, Essex called DVDs on Tap, which was run by two fantastic entrepreneurs who had literally used their own DVD collection to start the company. And they built it to just under a million pounds worth of revenue. Mm. And Thomas had basically bought the company. And as he bought it, he was looking to upscale the management and various other things. And I got talking to him and I thought, you know what? This is a really interesting opportunity. And if I don't do it now, I'll never quit my comfortable five-star corporate life because it's just mm. too hard to break. And the paychecks and, and get too point, hard to, to risk, right? Yeah, and at that point, it was kind of heart overhead. I thought, actually, let's just do it. Talk to my wife, and, and we agreed. What's the worst that can happen? So um, with that, I quit a yeah, real five-star, super-duper, swanky, <laughs> senior executive job and um, traded a, a very smart Mercedes for a very small v VW Beetle and uh, drove, around, drove around to um, Harlow Essex every day. Nice. Uh, and um, we built what then became uh, Love Film. I, I had brilliant fortune to convince someone that I'd worked with in my previous career, who was marketing director at Sega, a guy called Simon Morris, who is now basically head of global brand for Amazon. Um, I convinced him to join wow. me, and um, together we, with some of the people who already existed within Love Film, namely a guy called Graham Bosher, went on and built um, Love Film. We, we rebranded it. I think people, that's where the sex bit comes in. I think initially people thought it was a porn brand. <laughs> um, so, um, so we just grew and grew and grew and grew. And um, before we knew it, we had Amazon as a minority investor. And then ultimately, as you know, we, we ended up selling it to Amazon. 
Um, but I, I saw it through for the first kind of two and a half years. So I think when I joined, we had 5,000 subscribers. When I left, we were 300, 400,000 subscribers. Um, and just, 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 just really interesting times. What a journey. What, what? One, of the big things, one of the big things I learned in Harlow were we had a lovely little tradition, which was as we tipped over 10,000 subscribers, I had this brainwave that it would be great to give 15 of our staff um, 20 quid just to reward them. And I could do it kind of cash in hand. And, yeah. and um, we did that. And we did that on a Thursday afternoon. And what I learned was never, ever, ever give people in Harlow, Essex an incentive <laughs> of cash on a Thursday and expect them to turn up on the Friday <laughs> because, because to a man, no one turned up because all they'd done is gone to the pub and got totally hammered. So, um, so that was, that was a good learning, but, but really satisfying. And, and I, I managed to convince some other people to come and join us and, you know, just really happy days, really happy memories. Simon Morris lived in Chiswick, still does. So I'd pick him up in the morning and we'd spend an hour and a half in the car stuck on the M25 chat yeah. about what we're going to achieve that day nice. and then we do the return journey in the evening principally chatting about what we hadn't achieved against what we yeah. thought we were going to achieve in the day so that that kind of hour and a half segment at, at either end of the day was a fabulous tonic for both of us so um, I, just want, I just want to pull up a, something here mark is that in your in your story so far i've noticed that you've got a real focus and a real attention to detail on people you've got you've got this amazing ability to remember absolutely everyone you ever worked with, which is great for a start, but you've, you seem to, you seem to understand and read people so well, and you seem to really care about the people that have helped you along your journey and, and, you know, paying homage to them and things. It's a really, really nice quality. I imagine it makes you a very good, very good leader. Uh, it's an interesting observation. Um, I care enormously about a handful of people who have yeah. been absolutely instrumental in my career. And, and I'm, uh, I'm very, very grateful that those people are still brilliant personal friends and also people that, you know, I'd walk over hot coals to work with in the future as and when an opportunity became available. Mm. And I'm fortunate in my current job that I'm also working with some incredibly talented people. I'm not the smartest bloke in the, in the block by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm certainly not the brightest. If I'm good at anything, I'm good at adapting, I'm good at getting people to warm to me, getting people to buy into and subscribe to a joint belief and vision of what we want to achieve, and then moving forward together to achieve that. Mm. Um, that's, that's, I think it's a really, a really important that's, quality for people building businesses because you, you hear, we hear a lot, don't we, about the notion that, you know, analyze your strengths and strengths and weaknesses and then work on your weaknesses. When in fact, sure. there's so much to be said about just doubling down on your strengths and pretty much only doing what you're extremely good at and actually building a team around you that can compensate for your weaknesses. Yeah. then that's, that, and as I've got older, I've got better and better at doing that. Exactly that. Actually, I, mm -hmm. I, um, I've got loads of bloody weaknesses, but, but <laughs> at 53, I've sort of kind of given up on trying to crack those. I've, fortunately got a couple of strengths as well and I can complement all of my weaknesses with brilliant people around me who will will always be better than I can ever dream to be at those weaknesses. Mm. So 
you know, all this kind of rock and roll stuff that you've been doing in computer games and theme parks and and now films and slash yeah. arguably porn and whatever people yeah. thought it was. How on earth and why on earth do you then get into the heavily regulated, complex, often very frustrating world of healthcare and health tech? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a there's a bit of an intermediary step. So so from Love Film, I um, handed over the reins to a guy called Simon Calver, who then very successfully continued to build the business. And as as I say, ultimately it was sold to Amazon. I at that point looked at my kind of rolodex of investors that I'd met along the way, and one of them was a company called Balderton. They had a business oh, yeah. that was frankly a bit unloved and frankly not very good, called Touch Local. Uh, and basically what Touch Local did was it, it hired loads of boys and girls, principally on commission, who would go and sell or missell, uh, more accurately being the case, <laughs> to small businesses about how they could increase their prominence on Google. And it was just a horrible business that just was full of, you know, people who were a bit shaggy. Um, so anyway, uh, for whatever reason, I thought, actually, I really like the idea of that business. And the, the founder who had raised the money had decided that it wasn't going anywhere, so he'd left. So Balderton, basically, in discussion with me, asked me to kind of go into the company, spend a couple of months looking at it. Um, and I then met my now business partner of the last kind of 12 years, a guy called Gary Dannett, who was my CFO. And together, we first of all, acquired a business from ITV called Scoot uh, for a very nominal price. And we used that as the kind of axis of transforming a face-to-face -face selling, ropey, unaudited, unprofessional business into something that was a lot more professional, a lot more kind of in-keeping and very call center based. So I, I, I had my, my next experience, which is where I learned quite a lot about call centers and for kind of five years, had, had the pleasure of running or, or knowing how to operate a call centre, which was based in Stockton-on-Tees, you know, one of the really glamorous places in the, in the northeast. Um, and, um, and that was really great fun. I really enjoyed that. And Gary and I built a business that in 2015, we then sold to web.com in the US. And web.com were basically the, the larger all-singing version of what we were doing in, in the UK. And we got to know them and it became very evident that if they wanted to do any European expansion, they should do it through M&A. And we sold the business in uh, 15. So long story short, 2015, I'm sitting there thinking, right, what should we do next? Gary was sort of locked in, but I I'd kind of realized that my time now that the business had been acquired, going back to being kind of like a, a senior vice president of the Europe, European division of a larger company, was not my game. So I decided that it was time for me to move on. And again, got my roller decks out and it just turned out just by luck that um, Atomico, who are yeah. a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, venture capital company run by Nicholas Enstrom, yeah. the founder of Skype, yeah. had invested in a business called Chemist Direct. It hadn't quite gone as well as they thought, but what they had got was quite a good over-the-counter general health uh, online retailer with about two to 300,000 active customers and they were up and trading. So they had a platform. Mm. And at the time I had 
four years experience of Greys, which I've kind of skipped over. So whilst I was doing Scoot, I also co-invested and was on the board of Greys, the health food business, nice. which was started by Graham Bosher, who used to work with me at, at Love Film. Graham had this brilliant vision of health food through the post. The business morphed and morphed and morphed and ended up as being, you know, the most successful subscription health food business in the UK. And um, I got a real taste for obviously subscription and kind of disruption. And actually I bought into Chemist Direct in the belief that what we should do is uh, curated vitamins and supplements through the post. Okay. So, so I, I, bought, I bought the company with a view to making it do something very different to what it was doing at the point at which I bought it uh, or bought into it rather. And um, that's what we were going to do. So, so for, the, for the first part of 2015, Gary and I set about stabilizing Chemist Direct as best we could and got it far closer to profitability and sorted out its cost base and sorted out the kind of fundamentals of the business in the belief that that would give us a platform that we could then use to launch curated vitamins and supplements, which is exactly what I was going to do, which was a little bit more rock and roll and was a little bit more akin to Grey's. Yeah. And for whatever reason, and I can't quite remember why, I sort of had a bit of an epiphany when I read or heard about this, this business in Leeds called Pharmacy to You. And I got a meeting with the founder, a, a super guy called Dan Lee, and I went up and met him. And what I sort of kind of had a bit of an epiphany about was prescription and subscription are actually the same. Um, prescription medicines despite all of the kind of upstream innovation, actually in the downstream last mile, i.e. how you finally pick them up, hasn't changed much in 300 years. Hmm. And actually, surely people would really value the convenience of having it home delivered. Uh, and you could make them far more adherent because they would never forget and they would never run out. Uh, and you could consumerize an industry that, frankly didn't think of customers they thought of patients and didn't really regard people as consumers Absolutely. so i thought that's a really interesting sector and it's massive i had no idea that this may surprise you 43 percent of the uk population have a repeat medication it's an eight billion pound a year business which of course as we all age is growing and as we become more polymedicated will only ever increase and of course is, is a fractional cost. Primary care in the community is fractional compared to secondary care in hospitals. So it's just got to be a direction of travel that's only going to get bigger and bigger and better. So I just thought, right, this guy spent 15 years perfecting how you can do medications through the post, how it all interfaces with the NHS, how the EPS, the electronic prescription service, has now kind of come of age and is now... I think at the time, 80-odd percent penetrated in GP surgeries. It's now best part of 98%. So it's now ubiquitous. And I just thought, this is a moment in time where you could really light the touch paper on this business and become, as we would like to become, 10 15% market share. Yeah. That's a billion, billion and a half business. You know, that, that sounds quite good to me. And I don't have to travel much because it's only England. and. Um, if it happens here, 
then I think rather like, you know, I, I always say, you know, the British have such a reputation of designing just such innovation ahead of their time. The NHS, funnily enough, has done that with the EPS system. You know, there is no country in the world that has anything like as an advanced EPS system as we do in the UK mm. or in England. Um, and I just thought if someone else, if, if someone, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So with that, I managed to merge pharmacy to you with Chemist Direct. We raised some proper institutional investment, um, principally from the Business Growth Fund, who again, I had known previously, who were fantastic backers and remained fantastic backers. And we just went on and built, or I have started to build a business that I'm pro well, I'm definitely most proud of in, in anything that I've done in my career. We've been at it for three years. Went on and raised some more money from a fantastic healthcare private equity specialist, G Square, who really, really got what we were trying to achieve and saw the opportunity. And um, yeah, we're we're a, we're a kind of approaching a 100 million pound run rate business now. But you know, that's a tenth to a fifteenth of what I think our opportunity is. So. It's I'm just really, all about I'm really interested at this point, Mark, about the differences that you've then noticed in the healthcare sector or health tech sector, whatever you want to call it, or even pharmacy or pharmacy tech, whatever again, whatever you want to call it. But I'm interested in the differences that you found coming into our sector here in health versus what you've done in you know, film, gaming, etc. with regard to arguably, you know, a similar business model and you trying to work it around. I mean, how have you found things like regulation and the, the space in general? I'm interested in, in, in what you found initially and then kind of as, as you've matured in the space, I guess. Yeah, I mean, obviously what we do is incredibly important. Um, I could argue that what I've done in my previous career, whilst it's been important to me, People could live without a film or a snack food. Yeah. People can't live without the appropriate repeat medication. So in, we do something that's exceptionally important. And as is except, exceptionally important, so it needs to be exceptionally regulated as well. So I've actually found more similarities than differences. So nice. the first to say is, of course, it's more regulated. But I'd be really worried if it wasn't because <laughs> we do something that's really important. And we greatly respect and work within those regulations and in fact pride ourselves on offering, for example, the highest clinical accuracy of any uh, dispensing pharmacy in the UK mm. because we use technology to make damn sure that we are as accurate as anyone can possibly be. So I would say there are more similarities and differences. Um, if there, is, if there is a difference, then clearly, you know, highly regular, regulated industries take time to adapt to new models. And what, what I, I think my timing was perfect because Pharmacy to You had spent 15 years working out how all of this was going to work and the rollout of EPS to happen. And by 2015, it was now ready to go. You know, I could have spent you know, a, a further 15 years prior to that point, working it all out with pharmacy to you. I don't think I would have been any good at it because I'm not known for my patients, but, sure. um, <laughs> but, but they had, the timing was just perfect. Um, and we're not, we're, we, we exist because customers like us. We do something that they massively value. We're a free service, but for free, we liaise with the GP, 
we get messaged every time a GP um, um, authorizes a new repeat medication prescription. We dispense it centrally using the highest state-of-the-art accuracy and automation, and then we deliver it for free to your door. If you think of that model or value proposition versus remember to go to your GP, remember to go down to your local chemist, queue, maybe told, you know, something's not in stock, um, possibly have a pretty um, uh, impersonal uh, interaction with a locum behind the counter, possibly not. Sometimes, you know, and quite often there are brilliant experiences in community pharmacy, but sometimes there aren't. Um, we believe that there's a gap in the market and we're not trying to be everything to all people. We believe that we can be 10 to 15% market share. Yeah. And that's all we're trying to do. And, and we also believe that the whole community pharmacy proposition is changing and we are part of that change. And our, and our vision is, and it's one that Matt Hancock espouses all the time, is that community pharmacy have brilliant clinicians within them who are capable of triaging GP surgeries and relieving a lot of pressure on GP surgeries. What they aren't naturally as brilliant at is just repeat dispensing massive volumes of repeat drugs. Yeah. And that yeah. rather like the Amazon model is far better done centrally using automation and single points of distribution and then delivered to the home for convenience. And that's, you know, what we're doing is incredibly straightforward and very obvious. Um, but customers love it. And, and that's why we're growing at 20 to 30,000 new customers a month. And as a business then, for you guys, I mean, what's, what's the goal from here? I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the, the epic growth that you've seen and, and the market share that you've got and the revenue and things that you're doing now and, and customers. As a business, I mean, do you have a vision on, um, I mean, staying private? Is it going public? I and mean, what's, the, what's the kind of the, the goal from your perspective at this point? We think the opportunity is 10 to 15% market share and we are profitable if we chose not to grow at the rate that we are growing at at the moment oh, i see but the game yeah. for us is not about short-term profitability this is a longer term play and one in which you know we will continue to invest and grow at the rate that we all agree is appropriate to the opportunity we have Got it. you know and clearly we don't exist in a vacuum boots have launched their own you know, kind of version of our service. Obviously, Lloyd's acquired Echo. Yeah. Echo, a company we greatly respect. Um, and, you know, the independent sector still needs to kind of find a solution and reinvent itself, which I really mm. hope it can. Hence, you, you then did the raise from G Square to give you that capital, to give you that growth, yeah. et cetera. We, we, yeah, need, we need proper institutional investors yeah. who understand long-term patient capital and investment is required if you ultimately want to create something of real scale. And I think, sorry, what I was going to say was if you're interviewing me in five years time, what I would hope I could say is if you look back at what we've built and hope, hope, hope at that point we're approaching or are at the 10 to 15%, I would hope that we could say, look, community pharmacy now does do all of those face-to-face -face services because the funding model enables them to do it and they have brilliant clinicians who are brilliant at doing that and all that we do is the boring bulk stack stuff at the back end of it 
which enables people to be a lot more adherent. And, you know, we continue to make the NHS far more efficient and far more kind of, you know, on, tr- on, on track to deliver their mm. digital vision, I, I guess. And so for the people listening that might be on repeat prescriptions, um, and certainly most of us will be, or at least half of us will be in the future from what you're saying, what do you want them to know about your service as it exists right now? I mean, how do they engage with you? Well, we're really, we're really easy to engage with. You, all you have to do is nominate us. And that is, that is as simple as, as, as completing a form or completing an online tick box or completing a phone call or an SMS. There are multiple ways in which you can sign up to our service. And from there, once you've given us, you know, your home address and your postcode and your GP surgery, we basically do everything for you. And the next you'll hear from us is you, these certain types of medications are your, on your repeat list. They're ready for dispensing. Please confirm that you'd like them dispensed. And once you've confirmed that, and we'll do that, you know, kind of five to 10 days before they're due to be dispensed so you don't run out. You, the next you'll, you'll see from us is, is a discreet package, either through your letterbox or on your doorstep with those requisite drugs. And then, you know, a month in, month out, that's what we'll do. We're, we're far more akin to a utility. We, we're just there. We're, we're like switching the lights on. You know, you don't think about your electricity provider, but you really would miss it if it wasn't there. Well, much we're like the I same. don't think about my Gray's prescri- uh, subscription. Yeah. I was going to say Gray's yeah. prescription then, but much like I don't think about my Gray's <laughs> subscription or indeed my Love yeah. Film or Netflix subscription. So exactly the same way. I turn the TV on, I press a button and it is yeah. there. Or I go to the first And that's what we and- do. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what consumers in this, you know, in, in, in 2020 expect. And, you know, and you're absolutely right. And I think that, that for me is one of the big things that is changing in healthcare. There's, and bearing in mind, you know, you're not putting a price that, no. expecting consumers to pay for this stuff, but it even seems to me at the moment that there is market for B2C models to people in healthcare. If you can solve a problem and give people more convenience, it seems to me that people are even willing to pay for it. But in a situation where you can increase the convenience infinitely without then having to pay a subscription to this service which delivers drugs to your door it seems as you say an absolute no-brainer that this is the future i mean that rather than the alternative which is right now panicking when you get to the end of your prescription not not having it repeated having to go up to the gp or the pharmacy it's closed and it's you know all the, all the stress and hassle that this entire process causes it just seems ludicrous that and it seems to me that the only way that, that the future will go is towards a model which you guys are peddling. Yeah, but I, I, and again, we're not we're not all things to all people. We're ten to fifteen percent market share. That's our ambition. Mm. But we do believe that that ten to fifteen percent is an incredibly vital part of the jigsaw of what the NHS digital initiative will look like over the next kind of five years. Mm. And is that how long that you think it will take? You think it will take five years? Yeah, I, I'm not, as I say, I'm not known for my patients. It is not a quality <laughs> that I have. Um, so I believe it would take five years. And clearly some other people could argue, no, that it might take 15 years. It might take, you know, we're, we're changing an industry, as I said uh, in a segment earlier on, hasn't changed in 300 years. There are 12,000 pharmacies in the UK. Half of them are independents, half of them are multiples. The last mile of delivery 
has not changed really in 300 years. Mm. So we're changing something that people are not used to changing. We're breaking habitual habits. Um, and that, you know, it, it either takes loads more money or a bit more time. I, I, if, if it's a choice, I'd far rather find a way of it being loads more money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then go and raise it. Absolutely. So just before we close out then, Mark, I mean, what would be your advice to the health tech entrepreneurs listening that might be looking to get into the pharmacy space to solve a problem or indeed in any other space within health tech to solve a problem? I know one of them is to lack patience. I think that's a great bit of advice and something that um, I think people can definitely do with hearing quite a lot of. I think lack patience and and, and and also, um, oh, I've forgotten the other thing that you said now. But anyway, I think lack of patience is, is, is definitely a good one. But have you got any others? I, th- yeah, I, I think, yeah, I'm thinking because I, I, it's a great question. And um, as I say, we, we are doing a really obvious thing. When I think of the innovation in healthcare, you know, we are, we are right at the, at the very, very, very obvious end of what you could do in healthcare and, and healthcare as it goes up, you know, up the kind of scale of innovation and complexity and brain power. Just think of customers, just think of patients as customers. Mm. If I was giving one bit of guidance, we think of our patients as customers and we would like to treat them like customers and therefore, you know, our levels of customer service, our customer reviews, by the way, we've got over 140,000 Trustpilot reviews. We're the most reviewed healthcare business in the UK with the highest rating incidentally and all of the management team get all of the reviews as they're posted by a consumer and all of us look at anything that isn't five stars amazing amazing I think it's so important to treat patients as customers in 2020 because increasingly patients have choice as to what they do and where they put their attention and where they put their in some cases in the B2C models money as well. But I think in this case, you know, patients have a genuine choice as to where they put their attention as to what they do with their prescriptions. And and by treating them as customers, you're going to look after them far more and you're going to get so much more of their attention. And so I think it's such, such, such an important um, lesson for for the entrepreneurs listening. And Mark, look, I I know we we need to be conscious of uh, your time here, but if I can just get you to close out by just summarizing a little bit about yourself and your background and a little bit about pharmacy to you. And if you've got any asks of our audience, then by all means, take them away. So, yeah, I think we've summarized, you know, um, I, I don't really think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think of myself as a builder of businesses that had a really good idea to start with. So I'm not an ideas person. I'm just a builder. I'm someone who can help build a vision and someone who's had the privilege to work with, a brilliant team of people, you know, and, um, and together we've gone on and done some really, really things that I'm really proud of. I am most proud of pharmacy to you in my whole career, because I genuinely believe it's a bit of a legacy to be honest, without being too altruistic, you know, I'm a commercial animal, but I'm very, very proud of what we're doing. And I think we help people live better lives as a result of what we do. And that is really, really important to me. Amazing. And I encourage all of our listeners to check it out. And I'm going to put all the links to Pharmacy to you and to Mark and his socials and things in the description of this episode. So Mark, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, James. Really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. 
Hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. Thank you.